This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and I'm going to ask you to stand right back up for the reading of God's word this morning. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. I want to thank Pastor Moody for uh, allowing me the privilege to preach today. It is a, a great, great honor to be here on the 150th anniversary of this church. I can't think of uh, anything quite so wonderful and such an honor. And uh, as I look around and see uh, many faces, all much improved, of course, uh, <laughs> I, it, is a, it is a pleasure to see you and uh, hear the choir this morning. Let me say that... Uh, I haven't heard music like this for the last four years, and probably won't again on the West Coast, so, um, which is a different culture altogether. But a great privilege to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, greetings from my wife. As I said this morning, my wife of 49 winters. Um, she couldn't be here this morning because of a, a lot of obligations that have to do with a lot of travel and some upcoming things and a recent move, but uh, she sends her love and uh, misses. In fact, she says it every week, I miss my friends here out in Illinois. So, uh, greetings from Barbara. Uh, the 150th anniversary of College Church, as the pastor's already said, uh, what a day, a day to remember, kind of sit there. As I've often said, you cannot buy back uh, time with blood or gold. And so this particular time, remember that you were here on the 150th anniversary of College Church. When I came to College Church, it was only 113 years old. That's a fact. <laughs> That's 32 years ago. And, uh, and I was thinking of Josh. As he's been here now for several years. The 175th he should be presiding pastor at the 175th. And he may live to the 200th, you don't know. I'll tell you what, there are a lot of younger people here 
that if, if the Lord tarries, He doesn't return, the church will have a 200th anniversary and you'll be here. I mean, the flow of history, how fast time is going, back, uh, going on. I, uh, a lot has happened here since 1861, and that little book by Edith Blumhofer, which chronicles those 150 years, as it, it was just full of information. I found it totally fascinating. And as I read it on my flight again, reread it from uh, Spokane to Chicago, uh, I was fascinated as I thought about uh, sort of the genesis of it, at least uh, from a burden-wise and theologically with, with uh, Jonathan Blanchard at Lane Theological Seminary in Cincinnati being under the tutelage of Lyman Beecher, the great Beecher family, and Calvin Stowe, who is the, uh, the husband of Harriet Beecher Stowe, where those, those fires for the prairie and gospel were ignited and the desire to bring the gospel west and and uh, win the West for the gospel. And then as I went through there and looked at the cascade of, of uh, pastors' names, some looks like about 30 names through there, from Charles Blanchard to J.G. Brooks to Evan Welsh to Bob Rayburn to Carl Armadine, all the way down to the day, I was struck by uh, the gospel-centeredness of this church and its history. That's what you'll see. It's gospel-centric. Now, I didn't know Bruce was going to make all those wonderful remarks, and I couldn't come close to those, but one thing that I caught in reading that was I thought was totally exotic was at the uh, turn of the century, this church's commitment to the Turkish Empire with George Philean, an Armenian pastor, pastoring in Constantinople, and then Anastasios Zerophonitis, one of the places is Smyrna, you know, the seven churches. And then W.C. Cooper, as he said, appointed as our pastor in Turkey by, under J.G. Brooks. And then, of course, names that I know well, apart from the people that went to China, but this, the, the young Stows and the young Windsors married here and then sent off to Africa for those long tenures in Africa, the investment of their families. And, and I always wondered where parody came from. And I found out it came from Evan Welsh, as he said and his gospel-sated heart uh, some 70 years ago. And the dynamic ministry of, of Pastor Wilson is not in here, so I can say that. And uh, all the flood of missionaries and the millions that have gone out just in the past uh, decade, uh, tens of millions. And if I got my math right, which is suspect, <laughs> if, if you just say it... Um, at 2.5 million, that's $25 million the next decade. I, I expect that it'll exceed that. Because this church believes the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. That's what you believe. That's what you passionately believe. You passionately believe Jesus is the only one who can pay for your sin, save your soul, and change your life. You believe that with all your heart. A, no, a number of people here have given their lives to that. And I dare say that it wouldn't be a baker's dozen that would die for that truth. You passionately believe it. If the gospel does the impossible, like saving you, and like saving me, and like saving impossible little Zacchaeus. Now, his escapade is a fun story. The idea of a wee little man perched up in a tree uh, and then found out 
is the stuff of uh, children's uh, songs and flannel graph stories. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And there is humor there. But the story itself occupies a very serious and critical place in Luke's gospel and the account of Jesus' life because, now listen to this, it is Jesus' last personal encounter before his triumphal entry and going into Jerusalem. This takes place in in Jericho, just 13 miles outside of Jerusalem. All that remains, if you look at the context, open your Bibles, you see the parable of the Minas, and there's a triumphal entry. You see that there. Now, very significantly, it has this very crucial place in the gospel, and the final line is like a summary line of Jesus' ministry at the end of the road to Jerusalem. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. A great line, one of the great lines of Scripture. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It pulsates with power when, po- when, when properly understood. That saving the lost is what Jesus is about. Now, in this respect, as you're looking at this story in all of its context, it, it has a great relation to the two events that precede it. Um, its connection to the healing of the blind beggar, which immediately precedes, it's obvious because there you have a man who is hopefully lost in blindness and poverty, now corresponds to a man who is hopelessly lost in his blindness and his wealth, his spiritual blindness. And if you go right back to the story before that, its connection is clear with a rich young ruler because what is stated there as humanly impossible, namely the salvation of a rich man, verse 25, you see it in 1825, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This impossibility now takes place in the salvation of rich little Zacchaeus at the end of the road as Jesus goes into Jerusalem. And so his life is an account of how the impossible takes place. And in that sense, it is quasi-biographical of every person who knows Christ. Not the events, but the movements in his life. Now, this rich little man had it made from a tax-gathering point of view. There were three places in which you could collect taxes in that area of Palestine or uh, that part of the world, the Holy Land. And one was in Capernaum, one was in Jerusalem, and one was right here in Jericho. And he had one of the big three at the Transjordan in a very wealthy and prosperous area with its balsam groves and its palm trees. And he was the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel, which would then extort taxes from the people, pay the Romans, and keep what was left. Uh, Sounds a little bit like um, some areas geography I know around here. (laughs) Bottom line, he was filthy rich in every sense of the word. This was a filthy, rich little man, 
and not a likely candidate for the kingdom. And, of course, he was hated. I mean, he is, uh, he's got the blood of Abraham running in his veins in the eyes of his countrymen. His littleness is more than physical. He is a zero. They hated this non-person, his pathetic lowness. And no doubt some of the locals would like to see him literally put through the eye of a needle, squeezed out, as C.S. Lewis put it, in one long bloody thread from tail to snout. And no one would have ever guessed on that spring day that he wanted to see Jesus. But he did, as Luke says. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. Now, why would that be? Why would he want to see Jesus? Well, I think it's very likely that he had heard of the conversion of Levi, the tax collector. I mean, these guys knew each other. We're not talking about a big geographical area. They knew each other. They compared notes on what they were able to extort, sort of a fellowship of the scum, a sleazy fellowship. They hung together. And because Jesus had ministered to Levi, Levi, now we call him St. Matthew and others in the crowd, He'd irked the religious establishment, and so they scathingly said about Jesus that he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Withering, withering speech. So he thought, he's got a soft spot for people like me. And look what happened maybe to Matthew. And I think it's just got to be a truism of fact that he found his wealth to be unsatisfying. I mean, we all know that. What we have doesn't satisfy us, no matter how much we have. Marie Antoinette, with all of uh, everything that she had in Versailles, said at one time in her life, nothing tastes. I think we understand that. Nothing fulfilled him. Nothing lasted, nothing satisfied. This is, a, this is the way it is when people are being drawn to Christ. It's been like that from time immemorial. The, the lack of satisfaction is what drew St. Augustine to Christ. As he wrote in retrospect to God, addressing God, he said, You were always present. Beautiful phrase. Angry and merciful at once strewing the pangs of bitterness over all my pleasures to lead me to look for others that were unmixed with pain. And again, he said to God, your goad was thrusting at my heart because there was no peace until the eye of my soul could discern you without mistake. And so like Augustine, Zacchaeus was drawn by the severe mercy of dissatisfaction like us. I think being at odds with all of his fellow countrymen was uh, wearying. He, he probably was a man who gave as good as he got, but it was miserable, and the relentless contempt of his people left him feeling not only empty but desolate and alone. Thus, 
This restless little man was determined to see Jesus, but alas, on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. Now, I think I know what he was talking about. When a little boy, I used to go to the Rose Parade, and it wasn't easy to see what went by with all the big people around. I think maybe he experienced the Rose Parade syndrome and probably pleasurely administered by the people. Oh, sorry about the elbow, Zacchaeus. You're hard to see. Oh, that's your foot. Oh, okay. But short or not, Short legs, long legs, he used those little legs, and it says in verse 4, he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now, my Bible dictionary says that this particular tree would grow some 40 feet high with a short trunk and wide branches, very easy to climb. That's Zacchaeus' kind of tree. And uh, a humorous side. This tiny, uh, unfulfilled man, a pariah, sitting alone, hidden up on those leaves so he could see Jesus pass by is a very touching thing. Certainly didn't want the crowd to see him. Anonymity is what he wanted. And when you think about it, just seeing Jesus isn't going to change anything. He would look down, he'd get a private view, he'd perhaps hear some words, but he would remain unseen like an orphan outside of a well-lighted home on a cold night. But the interior-driven initiative of Zacchaeus that was driving him was matched by the exterior initiative of Christ, verses 5 and 6 tells us, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. When Jesus stopped under that sycamore tree and began to raise his eyes, you can imagine he had kind of a cold sweat. Maybe he started to freeze a little bit as Jesus lifted his eyes. The people lifted their eyes with him, and all of a sudden they're staring through the foliage at what they can see of Zacchaeus, and then terror grips his soul because Jesus says his name. Now, he may have known his name. Maybe he'd gone to one of those luncheons with Levi. I don't know. But when you put it in the whole biblical context, and you think about the Scriptures, there, there's a case of when Jesus sees Nathaniel, John 1, under that tree, and he recognizes his guileless character, and he calls him to be with him. Now he sees Zacchaeus up the tree, and he discerns his guilt, and he calls him. There you see hints of sovereignty and omniscience, supernatural knowledge. And then as Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' home, he didn't say, uh, uh, Zacchaeus, uh, any chance I could stay at your house today? He said, I must stay at your house today. He invited himself. 
because Jesus regarded this as a divine encounter, and his seeking of Zacchaeus was a work of sovereign grace. And what you begin to see in this story is that Zacchaeus seeking of Jesus and Jesus seeking of Zacchaeus are both the sovereign work of God. It's a sweet providence as they cross under that tree. And if I read the opening four verses of Ephesians, it is a meeting set before the foundation of the world. And a camel is about to go through the eye of a needle. A dirty little camel is about ready to go through the eye of a needle. So Luke says he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Leaves descending, he descends uh, maybe more aware now of his, his, maybe it's been inarticulate, but it's, it's out there. People can see it. He wants to see Jesus. He's enthusiastic to do it. And for, here, apart from the crowds muttering, he's gone in to be a guest of a sinner, saying this about Jesus. There's only joy. Zacchaeus' joy, Jesus' joy. And so the crowd's amazement as they're muttering, off they stride together. Zacchaeus hurrying along on his busy legs. And according to Palestinian custom, Jesus and his disciples spent the night in Zacchaeus' probably well-appointed home. And sometime during that stay, likely after much discussion and prayer, a little big man would formally stand and declare for all Jericho to hear. These words in verse 8, he says it to Jesus. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, if you read that, half of it is gone at once. And that if is not like if he really did it. He had defrauded others. Fourfold restoration. So his whole fortune is just put on the table. And in effect, he was living out the command that had earlier caused the rich ruler so much grief. Verse 22 of chapter 18, Sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. This is what he's doing. And he's walking through the eye of the needle, and he's living to tell about it. So this little man has become huge. The compulsive drive to make money and keep it is gone. He no longer needed his wealth. He went into that house with Jesus, mastered by his wealth, a desire to get. And he emerged with Jesus at his side with a desire to give. He went in the littlest man in town. He left the biggest man in town because something in that house It happened with Jesus. Now, this this story doesn't leave us any doubt. Verse 9, Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham. He had the blood of Abraham in his veins. Now he's spiritually the son of Abraham. He's believed with a saving faith. On the analogy of Abraham, he's going to do works 
that flow out of that faith on the knowledge of Abraham. He's a new man. He's born again. Salvation has come to his house, and that is why his hands were opened. His grip was loosened. Now, non-believers, and you know this, are quick to criticize the gospel and the evangelical church as sentimental, unpractical, using a number of ugly adjectives. They think we, aren't, we don't care about culture, we don't care about the poor, which is a lot of bunk. As you know, politicized bunk. But if they think that, maybe we give them the wrong impression because that's not the gospel, because the gospel loosens our grip on things. And I want you to see what Dr. Luke is doing here in Luke's gospel. So I'd like you to open, just, you got your Bibles open, turn back to 624. This is the Sermon on the Plain. And Jesus says there, but woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your consolation. What he does, he pronounces a woe on the rich because in their self-sufficiency, and I'm saying he pronounces a woe on people like us because of our self-sufficiency. We're opposite of those who come, he came to preach the gospel to because in 418, he begins his ministry quoting Isaiah 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, ultimately the poor in spirit. Lucan theology on material things. Uh, Turn to chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. You have these solemn words to all who trust in riches. You know the story. To the rich fool, God said, uh, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you prepared Whose will they be? So it is with one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I love that little haiku. Last night, my barn burned down. Now I can see the moon. And then in 1633, that axiom from the words, from the lips of Jesus, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then, following that, you come to the preceding chapter, chapter 18, verses 24 and 25, and he gives his response to the rich ruler. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what Jesus is doing, he's saying over and over and over again to us as we read it now, that it's useless to talk about loving God and trusting Him and having a sweet assurance of forgiveness, a glorious hope in heaven, if it doesn't make a difference in our material attachments. I mean, this, is, this is pretty hard stuff. He's not saying generosity is the means of redemption. It certainly isn't. It is an evidence of redemption. And here is where I think this whole gospel thing and what's going on here 
segues right into the history of this church. Because it didn't give tens of millions of dollars the last decade for no reason. It gave it because of the gospel. And it gives 25 or $30 million the next decade. It's because of the gospel. And those missionaries that went to the Turkish Empire went because of the gospel, and they were supported because of the gospel. They went to China because of the gospel. They went to Africa because of the gospel to our community because of the gospel, to the ministries here because of the gospel. And so I really believe when the gospel has your heart, it opens your hands, and you become generous people. That's what happened to him. The gospel makes little people big. Now, as we mentioned, the account ends with a great summary of Christ's mission. This is a great verse. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That that pulsates with power. Zacchaeus was beyond salvation. He was impossibly lost. You would have felt that way if you lived in Jericho. You'd have felt that way if you had Hebrew blood running through your veins and you've got this... uh, collaborationist and this rich man, this filthy, rich rich little man, you'd have written him off. Think about it. He turned the back on God's word. He turned it back on his covenant people. He was a, a, a perpetrator of Roman oppression, a traitor. He made his living off the backs of his people by extortion like a thief. He was a lover of money. That tax business was the cause of so much injustice. He was the smallest man in town. Impossible. Except for one thing, he was sought out, and you see that by the final line of that verse, by the Son of Man. That Son of Man comes from Daniel, the seventh chapter, Verses 13 and 14, that's the majestic sovereign being of Daniel's vision to whom the Ancient of Days has given all dominion and all authority as the Son of Man is awesome God. That is Jesus' chosen self-designation from Daniel, the seventh chapter. That's how he identifies himself. It's used 60 times in the New Testament. The Son of Man pulsates with power. Jesus is a transcendent God-man, co-eternal with the Ancient of Days. That is who sought out Zacchaeus. That is why Zacchaeus responded. So that camel-brained, donkey-souled little man passed through the eye of a needle, not as a long, bloody thread from tail to snout, but whole. Because of Jesus the door, the impossible happened. Salvation came to Zacchaeus because he was sought out. That, that, that uh, interior seeking, that dis-ease, that, that lack of fulfillment was caused by God. As Augustine said of God in another place, you follow close, you God, follow close behind the fugitive and you call us to yourselves in ways we cannot understand. 
He makes us hungry. He makes us search. He makes us long. He makes us desolate. He makes us disconsolate. And it was God who arranged that exterior seeking when they crossed under the tree. Zacchaeus was caught because in his seeking, he was sovereignly sought. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my heart to seek Him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior true. No, I was found of you. It was God. And if God is seeking you, you, there will be this interior desolateness and disease. Nothing satisfies. Nothing. You're never really comfortable anymore. No wholeness. Lack of a clear conscience. A, a leaden cape. A lack of peace. Quote Lewis again, but remember this. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and His compulsions are liberation. That hardness is His grace. That compulsion is His grace. That is Him seeking you. And if that is so, if you're just new to all of this, then by virtue of your being here, you're sitting under the tree. You're in the crosshairs of grace. And Jesus Christ is saying to you, I want to dine with you. Come down. I want to sup with you. I'm awesome, God. I died for you. Come down. The gospel of the impossible. The gospel of the impossible because, is because Jesus did the impossible. He created all the universe. You've heard me wax about that over the years. I won't do that again and get the kind of painful look that I get, but, you know, the 80 billion light years across the universe, the whole thing. He created everything, and He just did it. It was nothing. It, 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 he did it with the ease of omnipotence. He did it with the Word. He, was, he remained omnipotent when He did it. Power went out, but it didn't deplete his power. He did it with a word, but the hardest thing ever done in, in all the universe was becoming incarnate and dying on the cross for our sins. That is the thing when he looked at the cup in the garden, he asked God to take it from him if it was his will because of the horror of what he did. He did the hardest thing in time and eternity, the impossible thing, so that he can save impossibly lost little people like us. That is the great gospel, the gospel of the impossible. That is what will drive this church. And as I think about the next 25 years, the next 50 years, the next 100 years, you know how fast they're going to go. I knew Evan Welsh. And I don't know who he knew before, but it had to be one of the Blanchards and probably before that. I mean, it goes by so fast. Let's be gospel people. Let's believe in the impossible gospel and take it out to the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we are we're so grateful because impossibly lost as we were, 
caught in our own self-righteousness and in our own ignorance, idolaters, every one of us, uh, you reached down and you saved us. We thank you for your grace. We pray that this great gospel, uh, the preaching of the gospel that, that is so beautifully rendered on the banners before us, proclamation of the gospel would be uh, in this tenure and the tenures to come to your grace and your glory. Amen.